You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, The Admiral Benbow, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, Howard, Crimson Davy Thunder, and Felony Melanie. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The Comoros Islands are an interesting region. Culturally and ethnically and historically speaking, they're fascinating. But their history can be a little bit tough to parse out. Most of it was recorded by Muslim missionaries way after the fact, centuries after the fact, and most of it rings about as true as St. Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland. As far as I can tell, they were originally settled by the same Malagasy peoples who populate Madagascar, around the same time even. There may or may not have already been Swahili people from mainland Africa living there, but one way or another the Swahili were eventually enslaved by the Malagasy. Over the next few centuries, there was a lot of cultural back and forth and a lot of people having babies, and eventually, the Comoros became a culturally distinct region. It was about 1000 CE when the Muslims arrived. In two distinct groups, there were Arabian Muslims and Persians that colonized different islands in the Comoros, looking, apparently, for ingredients for perfume, but also slaves. These two groups from different religious sects were often at war with each other, and it was never, you know, a total war, it was small-scale, simmering conflict that went on for centuries. But in the 1500s, the Portuguese arrived and settled on the largest inhabited island in the chain. 
the Portuguese kicked out the Muslim inhabitants of that island, and those inhabitants moved to the island of their old simmering enemies. They were now in close contact and conflict with each other. Now, the Portuguese colony was set up as something of a base for the Portuguese to raid Mozambique, but when they eventually left the region, the English kind of took over. They never set up a colony there, as the Portuguese had done, but they did build up the harbor for their use, and they called this port Johanna. Johanna was still lightly populated by the remains of those old Swahili Malagasy peoples, and they traded with the English at Johanna, mostly just supplies for passing East India Company ships, but also with the occasional pirate. I told you last time there weren't any people living on Johanna, and that was incorrect. Just the primary inhabitants had been kicked out. As you can tell, I've been having some trouble getting to the bottom of the story of the Comoros Islands. Partly because I don't have any good sources on the region, but also because it's a really convoluted history. Johanna, years after our story, would be renamed Anjouan by the French, and now it's called Nzwani by the independent locals. It's a complicated past. But throughout all of this, those Islamic peoples, the Sunni and Shia peoples, were still at each other's throats on the island that the French called Mohia. A reverend who visited the Comoros Island in 1690 wrote about their conflict, quote, Multitudes indeed could not be mowed down by their martial weapons. They used neither sword nor spear, only hand stones taken up in the streets and thrown at their enemies. End quote. The Islamic peoples of Mwali, often contentious and violent towards others on the island, are about to become a relevant part of our story. Because Captain William Kidd was about to spend a very difficult few weeks among them. This is episode 246, Careening. William Kidd and the Adventure Galley, along with the loyal Russell, their newfound companion, left Johanna on 4 April 1697. In doing so, they left behind Captain John Clark and his small fleet of East India Company ships. They also left behind the much more friendly people of Johanna. But the adventure galley was not safe amidst all those East India ships. She wasn't safe anywhere. The adventure galley was not quite sinking, but the crew had to work hard to keep her from doing so. She was taking on water constantly. They sailed for the nearby island at Mohia and put in at a lonely abandoned stretch of beach. But it was a small island. Adventure Galley attracted attention. Before long, the locals were swarming the beach with goods to trade. They sent out boats to greet Adventure Galley and the loyal Russell, and their emissaries climbed aboard. When they smiled, though... The men's mouths were stained a blood red. Richard Zacks has some fun imagining the common European fear of cannibals in the remote corners of the world. And I imagine that the crew was a bit freaked out here. The locals chewed the betel nut. It's a moderate narcotic and very habit-forming. 
Addicts will often have blackened teeth, with gums and lips that are stained a bright red. I don't recommend you Google it. Users can oftentimes develop some pretty gnarly cancers that eat away at the flesh around their mouths. So I imagine that this experience was a bit unnerving for the crew. But none of these men were armed, and everybody on board Adventure Galley was, so they weren't in any immediate danger. Beyond that, they were clearly welcomed by the inhabitants of Mohia. There was a language barrier, naturally, but they were all friendly enough. But they did some trade, and Captain Kidd managed to secure permission to careen the ship. And here I'd like to spend some time talking about careening. It's really one of the cornerstones of the pirate experience. The stories of Blackbeard and Charles Vane and all the pirates of the height of the Golden Age, well, they're filled with references to pirates cleaning their ships. And it was always a dangerous process. If you're careening your ship alone, that means beaching your ship so she can't maneuver or fire. It was a moment when an enemy could happen upon you while you were completely vulnerable. Now, every ship had to be cleaned, and careening a ship was not a unique experience to pirates, but it was a rare practice for ships in the civilized world. You see it mainly among pirates and smugglers and explorers, people who were far from a proper or a friendly harbor. See, most ships were cleaned in a dock. The very best ships, the top-of-the-line ships of the line, were cleaned in the dry docks of London and Amsterdam and La Rochelle and Cadiz. A dry dock is a dock that can be closed and then sealed, and then all of the water would be pumped out. The ship sat on huge supports while a crew worked to clean and repair the hull, most ships, though, did not enjoy such a luxury in the age of sail. Most ships, most legal vessels, were cleaned in a process very similar to careening, usually called heaving down. The harbors in nearly every port city in the world had docks designed for heaving down. They were wet docks, which is to say they were on the open water, but they had massive supports and pulley systems to either side of the dock. While riding in the water, a ship would be tipped to one side and then braced in place. Then the crew could get to work cleaning her, and then the ship could be tipped to the other side, and they could continue the process. Careening, the pirate version of careening at least, had no dock at all. They did it on the beach of lonely and abandoned forlorn islands on the edge of the world. If you've seen Black Sails, there's an episode in which they careen the ship, and that looks mostly accurate. Not completely accurate, and we will talk about why, but I'm going to talk in a bit more depth about careening. To careen a ship the pirate way, you had to get it onto a beach. And that's your first major problem. But your second problem, a much larger issue, comes when you need to get the ship off the beach. It's not nearly as simple as using the high and low tides. If that was the case, your ship would float every time the tide came in. 
and it took way longer than that to careen a ship. I've debated how much astronomy to talk about here, since it's not my strong suit, so I'm going to keep it to a minimum, but it is worth talking about. Tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon, right? But the strength of that gravitational pull varies depending on the position of the moon relative to the Earth. Twice a month, the tide is at its strongest. That means that it comes in higher and goes out lower. The most drastic difference between high tide and low tide. This happens at the new moon and the full moon. That's when the moon is between the sun and the earth, and when it's gone around to the other side, when the earth is between the moon and the sun. If you picture a clock, and twelve is pointing at the sun, that would be at twelve o'clock and six o'clock. These highest and most drastic tides twice a month are called the spring tides. On the other hand, the weakest of tides, when the difference between high and low is at the least, that happens also twice a month, when the moon is at a right angle relative to the sun and earth, the quarter moon and the three-quarter moon, nine and three o'clock. Those lowest of all tides are what they call a neap tide. That is when you want to beach your vessel to careen her. You want the tide at its lowest so you can get your ship onto the beach, and then, when the spring tide comes in, you'll have plenty of water to float your vessel and make your way back to sea. But that's a limited window, the neap tide, and if you miss it, you're going to have to wait two weeks to try again. Now, Adventure Galley arrived at Mohia at the spring tide, which gave them one week to get ready to beach their ship. Plenty of time, really, not to worry, if they got to work. They had one big advantage here. They had the Loyal Russell. The Loyal Russell was that small, four-gun ship that they'd met at Madagascar that had followed them to the Comoros Islands. And for some reason, she was willing to help. Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary, from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune into Hometown History and embark on a journey through time, right from where you are. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. 
but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The first step was unloading the big guns. The loyal Russell took on all of Adventure Galley's 34 guns. Now, they couldn't all be mounted to fire, of course, but every gun that could be was. And some were taken to shore to bolster the defenses of the camp that the men were building there. But loyal Russell here wasn't only taking on the weight of the big guns. She was taking on the task of defending the adventure galley while she was vulnerable. Now, this is weird. In the story we've been told, loyal Russell just kind of happened upon the adventure galley, and Captain Kidd tried to leave them behind. But the smaller ship followed after him. And now, for some reason, Kidd is just okay with handing all of his guns over to a ship that could, if she chose, just sail away with them. When the adventure galley was beached for careening, it's not like he could do much. She'd have a week to get away. Does this sound reasonable to you? Even if Kidd was going to put his own men on board the Loyal Russell to ensure they didn't stab him in the back, well, why would the Loyal Russell agree to do it? I mean, what profit could they expect from the adventure galley here? The Loyal Russell is usually characterized... Well, you know those old cartoons where there's a little bulldog that follows the big bulldog around? And he's always kind of yappy and annoying. Come on, Mac, we'll get him, Mac. And then the bulldog slaps him and says, Yeah, shut up. Richard Zacks compares the pair to a shark. That's the adventure galley. And the loyal Russell as one of the pilot fish that surround and follow the shark. In Captain Kidd and the War Against the Pirates, Robert C. Ritchie writes, quote, The loyal Russell a sloop from Barbados, came to Madagascar to buy slaves. Earlier it had visited the Cape Colony, where Commodore Warren had suspected it of being in consortship with Kidd. There is no evidence for such a partnership, but it was fortunate for Kidd. End quote. Now, I'd like to be clear. I don't have any evidence for the wild claims I'm about to make, but none of the story of the loyal Russell, none of the versions we've been fed, make any sense to me. If they sailed to Madagascar to buy slaves, well, where were they? If they had some on board, then why were they following Captain Kidd around? They should be going back to America or England or wherever they were planning to sell those slaves. But instead they're gallivanting around the Indian Ocean with Captain Kidd. Robert Ritchie goes on to call the loyal Russell an unwelcome guest and says that Kidd put them to work, but why are they there? And when you see what's going to happen to the loyal Russell down the line, it just... what? None of it makes any sense. So I have three theories. First, there's Occam's Razor that it really was just a ship in the region to buy slaves, but that they were buying slaves illegally, that they were 
interlopers. It sure wasn't a Royal Africa Company ship, and that might explain why they were hesitant to stay with an East India Company fleet. That is the most simple explanation for the discrepancies in this story then. Second, it's also possible, as I mentioned last time, that they were just some pirates from Madagascar who had a sloop. That's a simple, clean answer, and it does kind of explain what's going to happen with them down the road. But then I have a third theory, and this one is less solid as theories go. Do you remember when Adventure Galley set out from New York City, I briefly mentioned a small ship that Adventure Galley had with her. I told you to forget about that ship, because she disappears from the story pretty immediately. And there seems to be some confusion, maybe just on my part, about who that ship really was. I've seen at least two different names for the ship, and seen her described as both a pink and a sloop. And by the time Commodore Warren shows up, that little ship is nowhere to be seen. Unless, and I suspect you see where I'm going with this, what if that mystery ship that set out from New York with the Adventure Galley was none other than the Loyal Russell? Pirates and smugglers and alike who had deeply corrupt connections in places like New York City, well, they would have no trouble obtaining false papers. What if that ship was separated from the Adventure Galley in one of the storms that raged off the western coast of Africa when Adventure Galley was heading south? What if, when Commodore Warren appeared, when Captain Kidd was forced to make this wide berth of the Cape of Good Hope and sail into the Antarctic Ocean, what if this ship just stayed the course to Cape Town? That was the plan. After all, she didn't know where Captain Kidd had gone, he should have been at the Cape with his letter from the king in hand. Instead, when this little ship from New York arrives in Cape Town, there's an East India Company fleet, and here's Wrong Way Warren, and suddenly he's screaming at you about this pirate, Captain Kidd. What are you going to say to that? You know, yep, sure, Captain Kidd, that's my guy. No. You would produce your falsified papers, you would explain the misunderstanding here, and tell him that you'd never heard of Captain Kidd, and not to worry, you'll be on your way. I think that Commodore Warren, for once in his life, was right. She was in consort with Kidd. At which point, this little ship from New York would sail on to Madagascar to await the adventure galley, they would have fruit and rum and willing women to pass the time. And then, after they met up at Madagascar, when the Scarborough happened upon the adventure galley, and the captain of the Scarborough saw the loyal Russell sailing behind adventure galley, as we discussed last time, they would come up with this cover story about randomly meeting up on Madagascar, a story that gelled with what the loyal Russell had told to Commodore Warren. I think it's obvious which theory here I like, but as I said, I don't have evidence to back this up. So remember, whatever I may think or like to think, the respected authors who researched this story in depth for years, who dug into the National Archives, well, they all think that the Loyal Russell is just some ship. 
My story is definitely more fun, though. What were we talking about? Careening, yeah. The point of this episode. As they prepared to careen the adventure galley, the loyal Russell took on all of her guns. Then they began the process of ferrying all of the cargo, all of the supplies, really anything that wasn't part of the ship except for the sails, over to the beach. The crew of the adventure galley was setting up a camp on that beach. It was designed to be defended with those cannons, just in case they couldn't trust the locals, but it was also built so that the crew could enjoy a couple of weeks surely. This was typical when careening a vessel. You know, it's hard work, so you want to make sure that your men have some rest and relaxation when they're not working. But the crew of the adventure galley were not going to enjoy their shore leave at all. In the meanwhile, some of the crewmen found the strongest trees near the coast and attached ropes and pulleys to them. Richard Zacks suggests that some of those may have been the same pulleys that lifted the stones of Trinity Church in New York. Once Adventure Galley was free of all her excess weight, once that neap tide, the lowest of tides, was upon them, they positioned the ship parallel to the shore. You'll see a lot of modern sailboats careened with the prow pointed towards the shore, perpendicular to the coast, which works fine for smaller vessels, but on bigger craft, you'd beach the ship doing that. The loyal Russell positioned herself to help push the adventure galley onto the shore, while the crew attached those pulleys to the ship, and once the neap tide came in, Loyal Russell opened her sails, and the men heaved and hoed until the tide carried the ship as far onto shore as it could. Then the Loyal Russell, who rode much higher in the water, came up and nudged the bigger ship onto her side. When the tide pulled back with the Loyal Russell, the crew climbed aboard and tied those ropes attached to those pulleys to the deck, not to the masts, Finally, with the ship secure and in position, the crew could get to work. In this case, when the carpenter and the captain assessed the damage, it was... Well, it was bad. The ship looked like cork. It was full of holes. It was amazing that it had made it this far at all. They would have to patch and repair and reinforce the hull if they were going to continue sailing. First, though, they had to clean it. Every day, for hours, in the baking sun, the crew would use axes and these specially made iron scrapers to scrape all of the barnacles off the hull. And then they would have to dig the worms out of the wood. Now, they weren't actually worms. They're a species of warm water clam that burrowed into floating wood. They've always existed. You'll see the marks on driftwood today, but in the era of a wooden sailing ship, they were a real menace. They sank more than a few ships in the age of sail. Once the hull was relatively clean, they had to pry the planks apart ever so slightly, but then fill the gap with tar and pitch to reinforce the seal of the hull. Where the damage was extensive, they actually had to add patches or sometimes replace planks entirely, which was difficult and time-consuming work. And then, once all that was done, the loyal Russell came back in and pushed the ship to the other side. 
They had to do it all over again. It was hot, hard, long, and grueling work. And usually that was alleviated by the rest and relaxation that the crew would enjoy. If you've seen that episode of Black Sails, you'll remember that they roasted a pig. It's a whole plot point. And they drank rum with abandon, and the crew even insisted that they set up a tent in which they hired some prostitutes to service the crew. So at its best, careening didn't have to be all bad. But this was not careening at its best. Mohia was a Muslim island. They didn't have any pigs to roast, but that's, you know, that's fine. They've got goats and yogurt and fresh fruit, and that'll do. Of course, they also didn't have any rum. Islam prohibits alcohol. They did, however, have those betel nuts, which the crew found out gave them a nice buzz and which the locals were happy enough to sell. But then they didn't have a tent. There wasn't even a brothel in town. The women, who they rarely saw, they were all hidden away. And when the crew did manage to spy one of the women who came to sneak a peek at these strange foreigners... Well, the women were covered from head to toe, which naturally drove the men of the adventure galley even crazier. So there were none of the pleasures of time ashore to enjoy, but it gets... Well, it's about to get a lot worse. The crew began to get sick. Today we know all about yellow fever. It's a horrible disease. It tends to affect more severely people from generally temperate climates, Europeans and Americans today, who visit tropical climates. It's carried by tropical mosquitoes. And if you're going to be visiting tropical climates, they suggest you get a vaccine beforehand. There were times in the past before the vaccine existed when entire armies would be devastated by yellow fever. When the Americans invaded Cuba in 1898, they were almost unable to continue the war because of the sudden outbreak in their ranks. I don't really want to talk about the symptoms. They kind of gross me out. At its worst, terminal cases have been known to... And if you'd like to skip ahead a second, this is the time. They've been known to vomit up blood and can even cough up lung tissue or lung lining. It's a terrible affliction, and it kills a large percentage of the people that catch it. And this crew of New Yorkers and Londoners and people who had never been to the tropics before, this was their first stop of any real length in the tropics. They began to get sick. Dr. Brandenham did his best to treat the crew, but even the best medicine of the day just wasn't up to the task. Plus, Brandenham had a bit of a drinking problem, so he wasn't the best doctor they could ask for. At its height, a full two-thirds of the men fell ill. That's 100 out of 150 men, including Samuel Bradley, William Kidd's brother-in-law. Now, Samuel Bradley got better, but 40 of the crew did not. They died and were buried at sea. Now this was a tragedy, in loss of life, men lost friends. Family members would never see their sons and brothers and husbands again, but it was a real concern for the crew, very immediately. They lost almost a third of their manpower. 
This slowed the careening work naturally. It took a full five weeks, thanks to the timings of the spring tide and all of the sick men, but by mid-May, when the ship was ready to sail, not in perfect shape, but as good as she was going to get, the adventure galley was short on men. They barely had enough men to operate the ship, and should they come upon a prize, a pirate or a Frenchman, they might not have enough to take her. Their mission was in danger of falling apart, and Captain Kidd knew that he needed to find recruits. Next time, Captain Kidd is going to find those recruits, but all of them will be men of dubious loyalty. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. You all make this possible, so thank you. This show is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. To check out some of their other fine shows, like the Explorers Podcast, go to airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.